Hello and welcome to the latest Tradecast. My name is John Bakey, I'm Head of Digital for The Trade and I'm joined today by our staff writer Hayley McDowell and we've also got a special guest today, it's JP Uritia who is the uh, European General Counsel for ITG. Welcome JP. Thank you. Um, so I'm going to kick off uh, by asking Hayley to just run through some of the, uh, the news events uh, of the past week and then uh, we're going to... Um, we're going to uh, talk to JP a little bit about Brexit and what it means for European regulation. So, Hayley. Uh, thanks, John. So, as always, we're going to have a quick look at the top stories from the past seven days. Uh, indeed, this was a big one. Um, JP Morgan is using high-frequency trading for US government bonds. Uh, so, we found out from uh, Virtue, Virtue Financial, which is the um, high-frequency trading firm, um, it was actually buried in their Q2 results, this um, this announcement that JP Morgan had entered into a three-year deal with them. Um, it's quite interesting for, for those of you who are sort of unaware of Virtue. Um, the firm was launched back in 2008 and it is one of the largest US-based uh, HFT firms. Um, so yeah, very interesting. Um, as I said, the agreement is for a minimum of three years uh, and it's kind of highlighting the recent sell-side trend, um, you know, where they're buying into this HFT tech, um, you know, whereas before the large banks used to be the main suppliers of, of cutting-edge trading technology. So um, that sort of trend is, is continuing. Uh, in other news, the Singapore Stock Exchange has officially offered the UK's Baltic Exchange £77.6 million. Um, so this is from talks which were announced back in May this year uh, regarding a cash offer for 100% of the share capital of the Baltic Exchange. Uh, not much is expected to change from the acquisition if it goes ahead. Uh, the Baltic Exchange's headquarters would remain in London along with existing governance, um, end user data fees would remain the same uh, and this is for at least five years. Um, so stay tuned for an update on that. Uh, one of my favourite stories from the last seven days was uh, from Alliance Global Investors. So their um, bond fund manager, which is the world's largest, um, PIMCO, um, reported 18 billion uh, euros in outflows in the second quarter this year. And interestingly, their, their chief financial officer um, said on the earnings call that 17 billion euros was withdrawn from a single client. And uh, someone on the call asked, you know, what happened? Why did they take that much money? And his response was, um, because the investor needed the money for something else. Okay. Now, I don't know what you would need 17 billion euros for, but um, there you go. For better investments, maybe. Yeah, um, exactly. Yeah. So, um, okay. Well, uh, PIMCO's a, a, a trillion dollar plus uh, operation, I believe. So they're probably not too badly affected by it. But uh Certainly not not something which they'll be uh, too proud of. Or no, to I mean it, it was certainly the the talk of the the earnings call. Mm. Um, but they remain confident that the outflows are going to be zero by the end of the year. So okay. who well, knows? Um, we'll see what happens. Yeah, exactly. Um, and news just in this morning: uh, Bats Europe has launched a block trading platform, um, and this is quite interesting because I mean initially it was sort of ITG and LiquidNet that were in the block trading space. Um, but now, you know, BATS has entered it and we also saw obviously Turquoise Block Discovery, um, which recently in their um, sort of first half uh, yearly results, 
they mentioned that they had had broken a record um, for value traded, which reached over 140 billion euros. Um, so yeah, a lot of competition in the block trading space. Um, but I did speak with Mark Hemsley, chief executive at Bats Europe, and um, he's very excited and very confident about the uh, product launch. Um, and you know, he said we've listened to the buy side; it's something they want. So um, yeah, be interesting to see how that plays out. Yeah, it's becoming a, a bit of a crowded space. Um, on another uh, block trading note, um, and perhaps uh, bringing us on to to, um, to talking about what's going on in Europe, JP, on uh, the day of, uh, of Brexit, uh, ITG reported there's dark pool turnover uh, reached $100 billion in June, uh, with a billion of European equities traded on the 24th of June, which was the day after the referendum. Uh, so clearly, it's having a, a big effect on, on markets, on confidence, and, and various other issues. Um, but JP, perhaps you'd, you'd like to just give us a bit of a, an overview of kind of where where things stand right now in this very confusing situation. Sure. Um, well, the, the 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 record that we posted on on after Brexit is is symptomatic of the level of volatility that exists in the market, which is again symptomatic of the 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 the, the nervousness uh, to try to understand unravel something that that uh, hasn't never happened before and uh, furthermore uh, people really haven't had any preparation for in the last 40 years at yeah. least on as far as the UK government is concerned particularly around negotiating trade agreements um, certainly the May uh, Theresa May's government is is a break from uh, Cameron's past and uh, is perhaps the, the biggest difference is that it's not an instinctively liberal government. Um, I understand that the Treasury is already consulting on uh, passporting rights, uh, very dear to those of us that are students of MIFID II. And rather than focusing on the technical aspects of passporting rights, uh, the Treasury seems to be focusing on what percentage of the tax revenue would be lost as a result of uh, the loss of those passporting rights. From a strategic perspective for negotiating, it makes a lot of sense. However, I, I, I have some substantive doubts as to whether the Treasury will be able to model all of the unintended consequences of the loss of those passporting rights together with what that might in turn mean to further loss of tax revenue. Yeah, I mean, it would be quite crippling for the city to, to lose passporting, I'd assume. In, indeed, um, for, for some aspects of the city that uh, have grown, uh, certainly in the last 15 years, uh, it would be a momentous change. For other aspects of the city that have continued or other or, or new elements to, to the way in which the city might adapt, that might be a different story. But, but certainly it does bring into focus a potential, and I mean potential, not, nothing more than that, a potential crisis for that segment of the city that yep. was accustomed to having those passporting rights. Okay. Um, and, and what about in Brussels? I know you spend uh, a lot of time there. What are people saying about Brexit? How, how are they likely to approach it? Well, on, on the other side of the channel, we, we do have uh, member states that are in their own pre-election uh, mode. And we also have a European Commission that is extremely independent in thinking. We've seen um, the decision by uh, Jean-Claude Juncker to appoint um, uh, uh, Michel Barnier uh, to become the, 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 the Brexit negotiator on behalf of the European Commission. Um, that, that truly 
in a way uh, crystallizes the the concept of the independent thinking around the European Commission. But of course, uh, the key difference between the European Council, that is where the member states are, and the European Commission, is that the European Commission has none of the responsibilities of nation states. Yeah. Um, so I suppose one of the, the sort of crucial points in all this that's going to be coming up at, at some undefined point in the future is uh, is the triggering of Article 50. Um, there's a lot of talk about when it might be, you know, some people are calling for it to happen as soon as possible. You know, we've seen uh, the French government in particular seems very keen on this to, to get going straight away. But, you know, what's realistic? When, when do you think this is actually going to happen? Yeah, well, just, just briefly touching on um, the, the, the French government, I think that the, the, the concept of triggering it sooner rather than later, has that tone has recently changed. Mm-hmm. The, the cynical in me believes that that has changed as a result of having Barnier uh, within the European Commission now uh, looking at all these issues. But, but from, from this side of the uh, English Channel, or, or La Manche, as it might say, the <laughs> other side, um, Article 50, the triggering, I think that uh, from a May government perspective is, is, is something that they will take a more cautious approach, uh, certainly more so than the predecessor. And uh, they, they, they will also, in my view, are probably edging more towards uh, obtaining a parliamentary approval for the triggering of the Article 50 rather than using the royal prerogative. Um, this, this has uh, a series of impacts across different areas. One that I would expect, uh, particularly as the one you were touching on uh, in terms of when Article 50 will be triggered, I think that the the discussion on the other side of the channel with Merkel now, with France aligned, Italy rather quiet now, Mm-hmm. Uh, more so than there were before. Um, there is more breathing room around this. Uh, May, a more cautious individual, also wanting uh, to, in my view, obtain parliamentary approval. That all points in the direction of later rather than sooner. The cautious in me suggests that it should still happen in 2017, but probably not as early as January or February, given that you know to, to have an intelligent discussion that will uh, yield an intelligent response from Parliament, clearly you need to be better prepared than I think they will be when January rolls around. Okay, it, de- it definitely seems as though uh, emotions were perhaps running quite high uh, shortly after the, the result and perhaps have calmed down a little bit uh, since then. So, so I would definitely uh, agree that uh, we may see, see things a little more settled and a little bit more time for people to take stock. Um, now... I suppose what our listeners are really going to be interested in is what does this mean for what they're doing? You know, right now they're in the midst of trying to understand as much as they can if it's to and, and get it implemented. Obviously, there's various other pieces of regulation that are, you know, in progress or, or recently been implemented that, that all stem from Brussels as well. So, you know, where, where are firms left? What can they kind of expect? Indeed. I think that there is, um, you know, particularly for, for firms that have very l- laborious approval processes or have very complex organizations, they will have to move soon rather than later. Um, and that means moving sooner rather than later in, in what is not just a sea, but an ocean of uncertainty. Um, in, in, in those events, you have to map out what might be the worst case scenario, what I call, you know, slitting each other's throats 
scenario. I personally am I'm still an optimist and I don't believe that will happen. Uh, but but if you're having to plan on that basis, uh, you have to consider whether uh, equivalence uh, under MIFID 2 uh, might be something that uh, firms can rely in order to remain in the city as well as continue selling out into Europe. That comes with its own troubles. One of them is that you know, easy come, easy go, assuming that that is uh, an equivalence test is issued by the European Commission, um, that might also at a later point in time be withdrawn. Yeah. Uh, the impact around that, of course, is that you, you, you will have to live with that uncertainty if you're taking that choice of remaining in the city. And, uh, uh, but, but, but nonetheless, uh, the advantages of equivalence uh, over uh, having an, an arrangement ranging from whether you stay in the EU through some you know political mechanisms to perhaps becoming a member of the EEA, whether it's enhanced or just what we see today. But, but differentiating that sort of bucket of result from having to live with an equivalence, where you end up with equivalence is the ability to um, maneuver within the regulatory framework much more freely, at least for for the FCA and the and the Treasury in making decisions. Uh, equivalence tests only require uh, for the equivalence to be in prudential and conduct of business matters. Yeah. Uh, that means that, in my view, it would be quite difficult to pigeonhole, for example, market structure issues. Okay. Um, and can you know? Does that potentially mean that? you know the UK in the city can actually get some some positives out of this can maybe you know choose a regulatory regime that is you know more conducive to to finance in in London that that you know can really allow London to maybe you know offer things that Europe can't absolutely there there is there is there is that and uh the i think that for negotiators in Brussels the key thing is to maintain the UK as part of Europe as much as possible rather than trying to push it out because the outcome of pushing out what is essentially today 16% of the European GDP, fifth largest economy in the world, or we can argue about statistics of whether it's up or down from there, but near enough. And also uh, someone who's a Security Council member, you you, you want to keep uh, someone like that very close for beneficial as well as for um, practical reasons. Mm-hmm. So uh, the 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 outcome, I think, certainly from from the uh, from from that way line of thinking, is that there is uh, opportunity out there, as well as you know, clearly there will be uh, some some uh, growing pains uh, around uh, a possibility where the UK completely exits the European Union. I don't believe that will happen, but if it does. It's something for both sides to bear in mind. One to look at the opportunities, and the other one to make sure it doesn't happen. Yeah. Okay. Brilliant. Well, I'm afraid that that is all that we've got time for today. Um, JP, that's been really, really helpful and really uh, insightful. Uh, look at what's going on in Brussels, and uh, I hope that we'll uh, be able to bring you back to update us as uh, as this develops. Um, so I'd like to to thank everybody for listening, and we'll see you next time. <laughs>